In 2023, we're asking our readers and listeners to join Pellicle in helping us to become profitable. Every month, we pay writers, illustrators and photographers a fair rate for their work. And this is all thanks to our sponsor, Hotburns and Black, and the hundreds of people who subscribe via Patreon. We want you to help us hit 500 subscribers so that we can create a sustainable resource for Pellicle and so that we can continue publishing more articles and more podcasts like this one. We can only keep this magazine and podcast going through the support of our readers. So if this sounds like something you can help with, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash mag to sign up today. We're determined to make one of the best drinks magazines out there, and we can only do this with your help. Thanks for listening. And now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis, and the third of our instalment of panel discussions from last year's Fine Fest, the festival from Scotland's Fine Ales. This week, the discussion is about barrel-aged beers. Who's buying them? How are they made? Why are breweries investing their time and resources into a product that, yes, it's very delicious and very exciting, but what's the appeal and how do you make money from them? These are the questions I had for a really interesting panel of breweries making some absolutely exceptional barrel-aged beers. We've got Toby McKenzie from Macclesfield's Red Willow Brewery, who now have a barrel and fooder ageing programme, and I've talked about them on this podcast. They're making some exceptional beers. We've also got Dave McHardy from Fierce Beer in Aberdeen, and I don't know if you've had their very big moose, especially the barrel-aged version. It's a wonderful expression of bourbon in a barrel-aged stout. But they also recently launched a project called Fierce by Nature, making wild and sour barrel-aged beers. So we get a chance to talk about both of those. And we've also got Lee Grabham from Brew York, and they've been making some really interesting spirit barrel-aged beers for the past few years. And they also have aspirations to do some more subtle Belgian-inspired wild and barrel-aged beers. It's a really fascinating chat and quite a long one. So we're going to get straight into it this week. But one thing I wanted to address before we do get into it is the fact that this is an all-male panel. In putting these talks together, I worked really hard to create panels that were as diverse as possible. And you have to understand that these panels are based on who is attending this festival. And sometimes people, you contact them and ask them to be on a panel and they don't want to, which is completely fair enough. Not everyone likes to get up in front of an audience and speak about their job. But I wanted to acknowledge this and say that as this podcast moves forward, I am going to make a conscious effort to have more diverse panels and a more diverse range of guests. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I don't want to listen to a load of blokes talking about beer all the time. So this is my pledge to you to make sure that our guests on the Pellicle podcasts are inclusive. And I hope that the fact that this is another all-male panel at a beer festival isn't too much of an issue for you and it's something that we are thinking about. I also want to apologise for a little bit of noise. There's some feedback and I hope that's not too much of a distraction for you. What I will say is when there is a bit of feedback it usually dies away pretty quickly and we are at a beer festival in Scotland. Towards the end we even get a bit of bagpipes in the background, of course we do. Right, let's get into it. This is a panel discussion called More Foders, More Problems. Has the barrel aging bubble burst? This talk, we are talking about barrel aging, uh, and I'm very happy to have Toby McKenzie from Red Willow Brewery in Macclesfield, Dave McHardy from Fierce Beer in Aberdeen, and Lee Grabham from Brew York in York, surprisingly enough. Um, Before we go into the questions, I think it'd be a really good idea for each of you to to introduce yourselves uh, to the audience and just tell everyone a little bit about your brewery and and, uh, the beer you make. And Toby, you're nearest to me, so do you want to start? Okay, uh, hello everyone, uh, I'm Toby, uh, that's my wife Caroline over there. We started Red Bull Brewery about 12 years ago now. Um, started off very much uh, a traditional cast brewery, 
Um, and over the time, we started to develop, um, obviously, both Cake and Cask, but also Cake and Can, rather, but also a barrel aging program. Uh, and that really only started in the last four to five years. Um, it's taken a long time to build up a barrel population, which is sufficiently big enough that we can start blending beers as we come through. It's very rare that we actually do a single um, release beer, so a single barrel beer. Most of our beers that we produce, for example, the beer de coupage we're about to taste now, is a blend of a three-year-old, a two-year-old, a one-year-old, and the fresh saison. So we, we tend to be more blenders rather than pure barrel aging, if that makes sense. Fantastic. So the beer you're tasting, as Toby said, that's beer de coupage. So it's a blend of three? A uh, blend of a three-year-old, a two-year-old, a one-year-old, and a fresh saison. Um, and we did we did an initial run of uh, I can't remember how many cases it was, um, and these are the last two we had left in the brewery, um, and we're just about to uh, blend and package uh, the 2022 version. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, enjoy, folks. Cheers. I hope I hope I get one, Ian. Um, Dave, why don't you tell us about Fierce Beer and a little bit about the barrel aging you do there? Sure, so I'm Dave McCarty, one of the co-founders of Fierce Beer up in Aberdeen. Um, we've been going for just over six years, just moved to a new premises recently, so hopefully get a lot more beer out there. Um, we started off quite adjunct heavy on the, the beers that we did, um, a lot of fruit, chilli, chocolate, things like that. We've since moved into some IPAs and, and lager and things like that as well to to keep things going, we have barrel aged from pretty much from the very beginning, sort of clean barrels, um, moved into trying to do mixed fermentation about three or four years ago, um, and something we'll probably go into during this panel, um, that's something we didn't we didn't continue with, but the two beers we've got here today are from that mixed firm project, so a, a Brett IPA and also a Bramble Sour, which we did in collaboration with Finale's Origins project. Fantastic. And Lee, tell us a bit about what you do at Brew York and, and, uh, and your barrel aging. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm Lee. I'm one of the two co-founders of Brew York. The other is at the back of the room, uh, loitering with the camera. Uh, so that's Wayne. Um, so yeah, we were founded six years ago, almost to the day the same time as Fierce. So because of that, I think we've become very good friends because we've had a similar journey. Um, and we're, I would say, fairly similar breweries in that we have very broad waterfronts. We do things that appeal to pretty much everyone. If you don't like the rhubarb beer, you maybe like the IPA. You don't like the IPA, maybe you like the stout. Um, and um, like Derb and the team at Fierce, we've been doing barrel aging, clean barrel aging, uh, pretty much from the get-go. Um, and I think it's fair to say we are known for our stupid branding and silly names. Uh, but hopefully the beer gets taken seriously as well. Who comes up with the silly names? Uh, once upon a time it was predominantly me, but I'm a little bit busy these days, so I'm pleased to say that we have an excellent team behind myself and Wayne now, and um, that's shared across the team. Um, some people are, are rich veins of uh, names, like our marketing manager Sam, who is always coming up with some fantastic ideas for the names. Who came up with Juice Willis? Uh, <laughs> Juice Willis, I think, was... Oh, it's Goose Willis. It's, yeah, it's because we have Juice Forsyth. Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> so many puns, so little time. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so Goose Willis, I think, was... No, that was the team at Brewdog York, if I'm allowed to say that word in these four walls. It's all right, it's all right. We can, we can add a beep in. Um, my first question, which I'll put to each of you, but Toby first, is why make barrel-aged beer? And the reason I ask this is because to, it's, it's difficult to make money as a brewery, as I'm sure you'll all agree. And a lot of that, uh, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping people employed is about those core beers, those beers that sell at volume, not people, that people drink in pints and, and buy, buy the multiple cans, the, the flagship brands. So why invest in something that is so time-consuming and expensive, and I'm interested in hearing each of your reasons, but first, uh, you, Toby. That's a really good question. That's a really difficult one to answer, if I'm honest. I think we, 98% of our production output of the brewery is low retail between 3.9 and 4.8% um, in cars, cake and cam. Without, without a doubt, that is the biggest amount of beer we produce. At the same time, you don't get into brewing just to make a, uh, a 3.9 to 4.8 percent beer. If you, if you if you got into brewing because you enjoy brewing and enjoy beer, you got into it because uh, you you genuinely care about interesting things. And I think if for me, the, the breweries I really respect, people like Mark Tranter, um, you know, Burning Sky Brewery, just one, just one of the best brewers and blenders within the UK, without any doubt, um, and. 
it's kind of that respect of the kind, those kind of beers they're making, that kind of desire to make something which is really clean, which is a blend, which is special, which is something that it makes you smile. Yeah, and it may not make the average person in a pub who drinks a pint of 3.9 pale or, or a lager, they may not like it, may not appreciate it, but it's you're making it for yourself, which is the bottom line. You're not making it for anybody else. You're making it because this is the kind of beer that I want to try, that I want to drink. And it, you, there's a lack of control. You know, the fact that if you're making a the same beer day in, day out, you get very good at hitting those numbers and making sure the fact that reckless always tastes like reckless, weightless always tastes like weightless. There's a little bit of control you lose with these. And that's fun and exciting. Dave, barrel aging. Why, why is it part of what you do at Fierce? I think when we were kind of setting up fierce and, and getting together to decide what we wanted the brewery to be. They were kind of the beers that we drank. So they influenced the way we thought about beer and, and the beers that we aspired to, I guess. Um, certainly on the, the, the clean side. So when we started doing our big stouts and they did so well, the obvious thing was, well, let's stick them in a whiskey barrel or bourbon barrel or something like that and see see how they turn out. And they, they, they turned out really well. So I think that gave us the confidence to say those ones that we're doing, uh, barrel-aged stouts, something we seem to be good at. So we'll continue doing it. We want to drink it. And they, they sell well. Um, the mixed fermentation, that's probably the... They're talking about barrel aging, but those are two very different beasts. And, and the answer to, I guess, a headline question will probably be split for the two of these things. That it's the mixed fermentation. We had a brewer who came in who was very well versed in that and said wanted to give it a go, and we thought we'd give it a try. Um, I don't think we understood the cost to market, the time involved, and everything like that. So, and then it, COVID hit, and so that influenced our decision quite a lot. So, um, yeah, they're probably two different reasons or decisions why you would do clean or you do mixed farm um, and for us the clean thing was always the the one that drove us to begin with and we, we dabbled in the mixed farm for a while so fantastic and lee why why did brew york uh, decide to start barrel aging beer so probably a combination of the two previous answers really so wayne and i right at the start decided our philosophy for beer would be that we're going to make things that we want to drink and we're just going to hope that other people want to drink those things. Similarly, we set about creating spaces in which we want to drink uh, and then hope that other people would enjoy those spaces. And quite early on in our history, we developed a name for, for making stouts like this. So there, once you've done the, the uh, sessional stouts, you do the big stouts and the big stouts, the natural evolution is to go on and start barrel aging and trying to elevate your peers uh, like um, Goose Island have done with uh, Bourbon County. Um, so that's where we started, and we have subsequent to that moved into a little bit of mixed burn. Not a huge amount. Most people won't be aware because we're some way away from releasing any of that kind of stuff. And that, to be honest, is entirely a vanity project. Uh, I love collecting Belgian Lambics. I've done it for years. I've ma a massive collection. I would love to get somewhere near to what they're doing. But I don't expect to be making masses of money. You don't get into this kind of thing to make money. You're making your money elsewhere with your sessionable pails, etc. This is something that we kind of like to do, and we hope to not lose money. So what does everyone think? Is this the Damson we're drinking now, Ian? So this is a brand new Red Willow beer. In fact, Toby, why don't you tell us about this? We're the first people to, to try it. Why don't you tell us about yeah, yeah. this beer? So this was about, um, about just before the pandemic hit, I got drunk, and I accidentally bought a Foda. Um, and if you don't know what a photo is, it's about we, we bought a 32 heck photo, and then we also bought a uh, 40 heck photo. Just because somebody emailed me and said we've got a photo available, do you want it? And I'm, yeah, I had no idea what to do with it. Probably got in a bit of trouble, um, uh, mainly because the kids didn't also didn't understand why I spent that amount of money on a wooden barrel. They kind of really confused them. Um, and then it turned up, and then a short while later, we, we made a few lagers in it and this kind of stuff, and then I got a lovely email from a lady called Susie, who works in, who owned a farm in Kent, and she had a whole pile of damsons that weren't suitable for selling supermarkets. And so she said, do you want to buy some damsons? Of course I do. Um, didn't realise what the minimum order quantity was. And half a ton of damsons turn up Sense on site. Sensitive theme here. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and half a ton of damsons. If you've never seen half a ton of damsons, it's a ridiculous amount of damsons. So half a ton of damsons turn up on site. Uh, luckily, we had a saison tank, so we just put them in the folder, put this fresh saison on top of it, and we left them in there for that was uh, July, August last year. And we took the beer out probably February, March this year. 
and then we blended it with another fresh saison, um, and then we packaged it last Wednesday on a brand new bottling line that we borrowed off another brewery. Um, so th this is the first time I've tried it in package, so I'm slightly paranoid. Um, but we'll see. Um, hopefully, there's a huge amount of damson, huge amount of uh, fruit notes coming through, and it's quite sticky. Um, most of this is going into bottle, some into keg, and then a small amount of it is then going to go into red wine barrel that will then form part of a hedgerow blend that will come out next year. So you're probably right, we don't do that much in terms of barrel aging. We tend to do more mixed firm and blending as we go through. So would that be a more, a more accurate description of the programme? A barrel is involved, but it's like the, the least significant part. Do you want to take a sip of your beer and give it a try? I, it's fine, it's fine. I've, I've kind of, yeah, I'm, it's, no, it's okay. Um, <laughs> For, for us, it's everything is an ingredient, right? So we'll have some barrels that are going slightly acetic, we'll have some barrels that are going really sharp, we'll have some barrels which have got a hint of vanilla coming through from the Chardonnay, we'll have some barrels that are absolutely awful. And then our once a month or once every two months we start taking samples out of all of them and working out how we can blend them and what we can do with them. We've got um, we've got raspberries, so we've got raspberries, we've dry aged on saisons and this kind of stuff, we've got blackberries, we've got damsons, and the idea is, what can we do with these ingredients to make something that's fun? And that's what it is. It's not, it, it, it's your right, it's a vanity project. It's what can we do with these ingredients to make something that we want to drink that is fun and we can never charge the amount of money we need to charge for it. But you know what? I'd like to drink a bottle of beer de coupage with some oysters or I want to drink some of this with maybe some venison or something like that. It's, I like food. Yeah. Fantastic. And... I, I'm, I think I want to get more into the food side of things as we go on. Um, but what's your barrel store look like? Like how many? You've got you've got two fooders. I've only got two fooders. We've got a cherrywood fooder, um, and we've got a white oak. Um, and they both form a wine. Uh, yeah, both form a wine. Both from Italy. And then we've got about uh, 30 or 40 red wine, Chardonnay barrels, something like this. We're just about to move into a new warehouse, which will put a big barrel store on the back. Uh, we've got rum barrels, we've got a Calvados barrel. So we brewed a beer with Colin Strong from Salt uh, about three weeks ago. And we brewed a Dubel Mild, which is a really shit pun. Um, so basically a Belgian mild at 9.1%, which has been aged in Calvados barrel. And that's probably the closest we come to doing barrel aging, if that makes sense. Okay. Dave, what does your barrel store look like these days? Last time I visited, you had a lot of bourbon, a bit of tequila, uh, and that was just the, the, the liquor cabinet. <laughs> Pretty much that. <laughs> now, what, what does your barrel store look like these days? Um, it's about to change quite a lot. So as I said earlier, we moved into a new place. Um, before it was it was in our, our dry store where we had our glycol chiller in there that kept the room sort of 20, 25 degrees. So it actually helped quite a lot to get flavour quickly out of the barrels. Um, we're going to have to set up something with a lot more space in, in the new bit so that we can have uh, more barrels in there. But yeah, it's predominantly bourbon. Um, when we're doing the mix firm, we red wine as well we had some whiskey um, but for for the big stouts it's, it's almost exclusively bourbon um, we won't be able to recreate the the warm room thing at the new bit because um, the way we're laid out so things will have to have maybe be, be a wee bit longer in barrel but um, it seems to be the one we get the best bang for the buck from mm. and we're lucky we got the cooperage up at Craig Ellicky which is only an hour from us so they have something like 40,000 barrels on site um, so we can go up there and we can we can pick the good ones and, and get something very fresh Fantastic. And before I go to you, Lee, I'm going to turn to the audience. What do you think of those Red Willow beers? Lost, yeah, absolutely fantastic, weren't they? Dave, do you want to tell us about the two beers uh, that you've brought with you? Yep, so these are from that Fierce by Nature uh, mixed farm project that we did. Um, one of them is a Brett IPA, um, sort of 6% um, golden ale that was aged in white wine barrels. Um, I think it was Citra uh, we dry hopped it with, and the Brett strain was amalgamation that we used. Um, so it was in barrel for 9, 10 months, something like that. So um, it's one that's massively improved in bottle. It was a bit green when it came out. That's maybe one of the things that we didn't quite consider when we were doing the project, the amount of time things have to sit in, in bottle once we packaged. Um, the other one is the collab with the guys at Origins here at Fine, which is a bramble sour. So again, golden ale um, that was aged on, um, on brambles for about a year, I think it was, with a lactobacillus strain in there. Uh, and that was in red wine barrels. So. One beer of yours I'm particularly fond of is the uh, the bourbon barrel, Very Big Moose. 
I once got a lot of shit from your co-founder uh, because he said, I really want you to try this beer. <laughs> and I said, I, I prefer a nice pint of bitter. <laughs> and then I tried it and it was absolutely delicious. So um, why do you think that beer, it's, you know, it's a big, rich pastry stout, why does it work so well in a bourbon barrel? It's probably the, the ingredients that are in the base beer, um, things like uh, vanilla, um, well, mainly the vanilla, I guess, which you then get across from the bourbon barrel as well. So it really complements that. Um, it's quite a, a sweet, sticky beer to begin with, and I think it picks up a little bit of alcohol, and sitting in barrel, it maybe it, it cuts through that a wee bit as well. So it's not quite as sickly when it comes out, which is, which is good, so it makes it probably even easier to drink, which sounds strange. Um, and it, it just seems to work really well. That sort of micro-oxidisation you get from the keeping it in barrels, it warms up and cools down. It seems to just bring everything together. There's a little bit of cinnamon in there, there's some vanilla, there's a bit of chocolate. So I think all those things with bourbon work really well together. So um, I think when we, when we made the beer, we always had half, a, half an eye on we're going to put this in barrel anyway, no matter what happens with it. So. One really interesting thing about barrel aging, bourbon barrels are a great example of this, is actually as the temperatures fluctuate in the brewery, the, the beer inside will be drawn into the staves, and then as it cools down again, it, it mixes back into the beer. So it's kind of like constantly moving. And if there is um, uh, spirit, you know, if it's a fresh barrel, that spirit will be soaked in. Sometimes they arrive at breweries and you can get yourself the devil's cut, they call it. Yeah, we do always try and make sure when we get the barrels in that they haven't been repaired or, or recharged or anything like that. So they are they are fresh, so we get a, a litre or so. And of course, they're, they, they're, they're all, always uh, completely empty before any beer goes in, uh, in case anyone from uh, HMRC is here. <laughs> we are very thorough, yes. Uh, Lee, tell us a bit about your, your barrel programme and uh, how, how many barrels have you got and what kind of beers can we expect from you uh, over the months and years? So I, I think we've probably got about 110 now. So originally it was all at our city centre site um, and then we have just expanded to an out-of-town site uh, about 15 minutes away and we've moved all of the clean barrels there um, and then we've left the dirty ones in the city centre because you need that segregation. Uh, we have bourbon, we have whiskey, we have tequila, we have rum, um, we have red wine barrels. So yeah, we have quite a few different types. Um, we just did a big sampling exercise with the team, one of the, the best days we have with the team where you drill into the, um, the barrels, you take out a small sample, you then reseal it with a stainless nail and you just have a little taste and you decide, are they at the point where we're ready to release them, or do they need a little bit more time? Are they good enough to release on their own, or am I going to have to blend that particular one with something to do with justice? So we had a fantastic day with the team, and um, I, like Dave, have predominantly gone bourbon up until this point, and now we've started to dip our toe in with some other things. And from that testing day, the things that have surprised me the most were the Spurside and the Highland Whiskey Cast. What we were getting from them was magnificent, because those drinks on their own are really powerful, and they, they would take over most things, but it seems to work with these particular stouts. So I'm very excited about releasing those particular ones uh, before the end of the year. Uh, what should we drink first? Ian was uh, gest gesturing at me. What? Uh, I think we start with the Empress, because if we have the other one first, you won't taste that. Fantastic. Why don't you tell us about what we're about to uh, be, be tasting? So arguably the beer that we've made our name on is a milk stout. Um, the original was 4.3%. Um, it's made with toasted coconut, cacao nibs, tonka and vanilla. Um, so we infuse it with the coconut and the uh, cacao um, and then we take um, some vanilla and tonka, tonka tincture. Um, it's been described as like drinking an alcoholic bounty. It proved to be very successful so we've then kind of stepped up through the ABVs. Uh, the kind of top end of the range is the Empress Tonkoko and once a year we put it into a different selection of so far bourbon barrels. What you're about to taste is one of the bourbon ones. It's been aged in Heaven Hill. Uh, this year we've laid down Buffalo Trace, Heaven Hill, and we're doing rum for the first time. Because coconut, obviously, you have to go rum. I can't believe we haven't done it before this year. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a magnificent beer. I hope you enjoy it. Um, about 50% of that is a fresh beer. Because over the course of the year that we aged that particular beer, the coconut character kind of dissipates, it, it fades away. So we brew a fresh batch of that beer and we blend it back in. Um, to make sure you're getting all the aspects of the wood, the, the bourbon, but you're also getting all this stuff that we originally intended to be there. How important is that blending aspect and what's the, what does the process look like? Because, you know, a lot of people might think you just stick the beer in the barrel, it comes out and, and, you, and you, pack it, you mix it all together and package it, but 
like what does an actual like getting the finished beer look like at the brewery? It's going to depend on what the beer is, what the barrel it's been in, how satisfied we are with the results. So some things, it is just going to be 100% from the barrel. It's not taking on too much wood character. We're really happy with how rounded it is. Uh, some of the time, like with this particular beer, the barrel character might be a little bit intense, so you need to freshen it up, put something a little bit newer into it, or blend it with something that's not quite so intense. For this one, we're blending it because we want to reinvigorate some of the other characteristics in there. So we, we typically take some small samples, blend it in different ratios, uh, work out where we think the sweet spot is. For this one, it was around the 50-50 mark between the barrel-aged um, and the fresh. Um, and that's as high as we've ever gone. In terms of a blend, typically it would be a, a little bit less than that if we were doing that. Toby, you do that as well, don't you? Like the, the we just tasted the Damson, but um, it, you know I had that beer from from Tank on a visit to your brewery. I'm just showing off now, uh, but um, it was a lot more tart. So what, how do you decide how much beer to essentially blend back into to the finished product to get it to where you want it to? Okay, thank you, Ian. So when the first when we first started trying the beer out the photo, it was it was so sharp. It was it was just painful. It, it was <laughs> unpleasantly um, uh, sour. Um, and at that point, we, we do exactly what Lee said. We 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 take samples out of it, um, and we then work out what ratio we're going to blend it with. So we sat there with sample tubes, decimeters, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, working out what percentage of the barrels going into it. And in this case, it's. 80% uh, uh, from the Foda, 20% uh, fresh saison. I say fresh saison. That fresh saison had been sat in a tank for about nine months um, as it was drying out and drying out and drying out. So we got we, it's a, a blend of those two bits, and it's the same with every single beer we do. So we've got a few, we've got a three-year-old um, space side stout in a barrel um, that's almost undrinkably smoky. Um, it's all it, it it's you know the fact there's a good beer in there. But when we did the tests on it, we were 10% bowel, 90% fresh beer, because it had been in there for three years. I mean, we forgot about the bowel, if I'm honest. Because um, it was right at the back of the barrel store. And every day we went, oh, we should do something with that. And so we have, we've got to blend it back at that kind of ratio, but it's the only way of getting the flavors to balance. And again, it's no, it's no one person's decision. It's, you know, it's myself, it's Tag, it's Tom, all sitting around, trying the beers, working out what works, what doesn't work. It's quite hard because you start off going and your palate jades after time, doesn't it, when you're tasting with different beers. And if I'm honest, you get drunk as well. <laughs> so, so, so which, which is, and it happens all the time. When you did that barrel tasting, I'm guessing by the end of it, everyone was like, yay! Yeah, we were did you write it down? <laughs> so you, you've got to, and so you, you need to make sure you make your notes. So every single barrel has notes on it about what it is, what percentage is, what character it has, this kind of stuff, and where we're going to blend it through. But that's mainly on the pale, the darks, and to be a fair bit more obvious. Dave, how do you decide when a beer is ready to come out of a barrel and, and be a part of a blend. What, how important is like timing? Can you leave stuff in barrel too long? I think you probably can. Um, we've had a few things that, again, we've had to, to blend back a wee bit because the, the character's been too intense, it's been too dry from the oak or something like that. Um, I guess the, the blending side's probably more in mixed firm. Again, it's something you do. When, when we when we were taking stuff out of barrel, we'd always blend 10% fresh wort back in there to re-ferment a little bit to try and clean the beer up. So, um, yeah, I, I think you can leave in too long. We, we taste every three or four weeks, I guess, the stuff that's, uh, that's in barrel just to see, see how it's going. But we tend to do the... Well, we have three beers that we always barrel age, we always have some of. So we've got a kind of a feeling in our mind what, how long it's going to take six, seven, eight months something like that so they're, they're fairly reliable as long as the temperature is consistent but yeah it's just taste, taste it um, get as many people involved as you can because people will, different people pick up different things and um, I've got a better palate on some things as well so yeah get the team involved taste it as often as you can and, and when it feels right get it out don't leave it too long because it can go very wrong so uh, what did everyone think of the, the fierce, by nature, beers that they tried? More smiles? Excellent. So can we expect a return to these beers uh, in the future from you? What's the plan there? There's no plan for it at the moment. Um, the new facility we've moved into, we don't, ridiculously, we don't really have space for it. Um, it, it already, yeah. Um, it, I, we totally underestimated 
how much time we were going to have to put into this project, how long it would take to get stuff ready to put out, how long it would have to be in bottle before it's ready to release. And if we look at the, the capacity that we have, there are other things that we could do with that capacity rather than mixed firm. So uh, we are maybe... I like the word vanity project, I quite like. We're, we're trying to keep away from it. And it probably was a vanity project when we first started out. We hadn't necessarily thought it through and there were other things we should have done instead. So I can't see us going back to it anytime soon. Um, you never know in a couple of years, but we've got loads of things we want to do with, with other barrels and the clean side of things. So I expect, because we don't have the facility set up for it, it's, you won't see anything soon, I would have thought, from that. So, Which is a shame because the beers are now... <laughs> three years after we actually released them, yeah, they're, they're starting to taste really, really good, and it's a shame, but we learn from it. It's a learning experience, isn't it? And, and like, it's not, it's not your bread and butter, so I guess that, that uh, makes it not too big of an impact on yeah, the brewery. Um, we're glad we tried it. We're glad we did it. We got some really good beers out of it that we liked. A couple weren't what we wanted them to be, but yeah, so we've learned from it, and we've got some, some good stuff, and it's something to talk about, and we'll keep it in the cupboard, and in a few years we'll try it again and see what it's like. But um, yeah, I think for now that's... We enjoyed it, and we'll draw a line under that, I think. How's everyone getting on with this Brew York uh, beer? Bit of a bit of a change from the sort of fruitier sour side to this very rich... Uh, I was hungover, and now I don't believe I am. <laughs> so it's a success all around. But something... And I'll ask you first, Lee, but then I'll, I'll, I'll bring it to, over to you, uh, Toby and Dave. What happens when you get uh, a barrel that is giving you problems, off flavours? Like, like, I've seen breweries in the US, like hit them with hammers uh, like, and dump the contents and a sort of a ceremony like this is a bad barrel so we're going to give it a send off but, but what, what's the process of identifying something that's maybe picked up an infection uh, or, or the beer isn't ageing at, at the right pace is, uh, is there a process for you there? Well I'd have to go a step back I think um, first of all there's no point getting annoyed by these things because you have to accept that there is going to be casualties in the barrel ageing project you are going to lose about 10 to 20% of everything that goes in the barrel um, we're using spirit barrels predominantly. In theory, the spirit, so the alcohol content of that should prevent the types of bacterial growth that should cause issue. But that's not always the case. You, you don't know how fresh you get in these barrels. You don't necessarily know the life you've had, they've had before you get them. So, yeah, it's a risk. Uh, but like I said, don't get annoyed by it. Just <laughs> price it in. You've got to accept that that's going to happen. Um, so we do, as I say, the, the regular testing where we drill into the barrels. Uh, we do the sampling, um, and then we use a bit of software called Draft Lab. And the reason I like to use this particular software is it's anonymous. So everybody in our team who's doing the testing is asked to rate the beer on a number of attributes. Um, and the reason I like it to be anonymous is um, it's all too easy to say that beer tasted pineapple. And once you've said it, everybody's tasting pineapple. So you, you can't lead people in, on their flavour, their tasting journey. So it has to be entirely anonymous. So we get them to rate it on um, kind of flavour, body, off flavours. Uh, and overall, the most important thing, would you buy it? Well, that leads into kind of what I wanted to talk next is, is the saleability of, of these beers and who's buying them. But I would like to hear uh, from Toby and Dave. With you first, Toby, like, uh, you know, if you open a barrel and, uh, and it's not right... What happens when, you, when you're getting a barrel giving you, you off flavours? What's the, uh, the method at Red Willow? It depends what the off flavour is, because some off flavours can be used in a very small percentage to balance other flavours out. So if we've got a barrel that's exceptionally uh, vanilla, for example, which is a Chardonnay barrel or something like that, which is very sweet, very rich, got too much uh, custard note almost coming through you can blend that back with a tiny bit of a sea take or a tiny bit of uh, sourness or tartness if we're getting too many pita cockles coming through or too much bacillus coming through we can, we can balance that through but in general once a barrel goes bad um, it goes in the fire what about you Dave you've got a lot of spirit barrels so is, is, is uh, finding barrels with giving you off flavours a problem uh, not as much I mean if we, we go up and check the barrels before we buy them which we're lucky enough to be able to do, then we can, you, can, you can smell usually if there's any problems in there. And again, on the clean side of things, it's probably not as much a problem as a mixed firm because if there's any off flavours coming through, it's probably because we've got an infection, um, so we're going to ditch it. Um, there are some things you can maybe blend out a wee bit, but most of the time, if, it, if it's not right and it's not good, we will, we will 
just ditch it. Um, so yeah, we're, 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 we're lucky from that. And again, using predominantly bourbon barrels, I think this wonderful uh, law in the States that means they can only be used once and then can't be used again means we're getting really good quality, really fresh barrels over. So I know the whiskey industry over here thrives on it. Um, I think the beer industry does as, too, does as well. So you can make sure you're getting good quality barrels that cause fewer problems. I can tell you an interesting fact about uh, bourbon barrels. So, uh, as Dave said, uh, you can only use a barrel once. Uh, it has to be made with a new American white oak barrel to be classed as American uh, whiskey, bourbon, or rye, and then with a various mix of grains to make it that particular spirit. But the uh, the white oak forest in the in the Ozarks grows faster then they cut it down. Um, it's a really fast-growing uh, deciduous tree, uh, and so it's, it's actually um, not causing any deforestation, and they make a lot of spirit barrels. The bourbon industry is, is, is huge, and, and, and then they all come to Scotland for the, uh, the whiskey industry. Do you remember what you wanted to say, Lee? I remember now. Yeah, now I've got through the, uh, the cloud of the spirit. And when you've t- said that, can you tell us a bit about this beer? I will. Um, so what I was going to say is... Um, even if you detect some sort of off characteristic in the early history of a beer, doesn't mean that that's necessarily going to last out. So if you have the luxury of space, the best thing you can do is just give it more time. And there's a bit of an adage in our industry, especially when it comes to barley wine. If you want to make a good barrel-aged barley wine, make a shit barley wine. <laughs> um, the crap it tastes before you put it into the barrel, the more amazing it will taste when you bring it back out of the barrel. So it's all about time and patience. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I've read a lot about uh, Bourbon County, which came out in like 1995, I think, the first batch. But they essentially brewed a, a high adjunct stout that was not designed for drinking neat, just getting the, as much viscosity as possible so it would absorb into these uh, these bourbon barrels to get, get this bourbon flavour. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that, like, you know... I, uh, maybe, are there bad barley wines? <laughs> but that's another question, but for another time perhaps. But it, it's interesting that like it, it's more about the end product than it is about the the uh, the work you're getting from from the brew house, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things you're hoping is going to happen in the wood is that you're going to get an interaction between the wood and the beer, and that's going to give wood. It's going to add tannins. It's going to add various different other characteristics. It's going to create vanillin, which um, is like vanilla. It gives a, a kind of softening. Um, and then put in the science in simple terms. You're going in with big molecules, and that's why the beer might taste crap. You might have different types of alcohol in there that, that's not desirable. But over time, they're going to break down into smaller, more palatable uh, molecules, which makes the overall beer appear more rounded and more balanced. Do you guys always go in with beer? You never go in with fresh wort or anything like that? Uh, well, uh, only beer so far, and then for our um, mixed firm, a small amount of wort, but we're only just starting to dip out to yeah, we always go with uh, a fermented beer that goes in the barrels. When we were doing again the mix firm, it was the same. We we fermented in tank, clean, and then put it into the barrels with bread or lacto or something like that. And it was similar actually. You you would <laughs> the stuff that went into barrel for the mix fermentation project. Some of it was tasted horrible, uh, and because you're looking for those esters and those other things that the bread will then chew through and, and turn into a lovely tasting beer. And it's a big leap of faith to say that's worth going into expensive barrels and leaving it because I wouldn't have drank some of that was often. I've got a couple more questions before I open it up uh, to the floor. Firstly, tell us about this bonkers beer. Uh, yeah, so for our fifth birthday last year, we did five beers, uh, all of them stouts. They were 11, 12, 13, 14 and 15%. Uh, this is the 14% that was a collab with Tiny Rebel. Um, Tiny Rebel are known for doing a beer called Stir Puff, which is kind of stout with marshmallow. Um, so we decided to take that a little bit further and do a rocky road, inspired by some chopped up marshmallow, kind of vanilla going on in there. Um, and then this is the, the barrel aged result. Fantastic. So who's buying these beers? That's, that's the question I wanted to lead to. Um, Toby, you're making, you know, wine bottles barrel-aged, wine-bottle-packaged beers. Um, you know, who, what's the expectation for these beers? Uh, I, think we, I think we make sort of different beers. Well, me and Lee, we make definitely different beers in terms of where we barrel-aged and this kind of stuff. We're, we're very much more the wine and the sour-focused. Um, restaurants for us. Um, obviously, consumers as well. But um, so uh, Adam Reed at the, the French in the Midland 
Um, he, he buys quite a lot of our bidder coupage, he pairs it with his tasting menus and this kind of stuff. Um, I'd say it's very much a food-led pairing for our style of beer. But I think that's because we're making beers which are mixed firm rather than barrel We're making things which are more on the tart and the, and the wine side than, um, than the stouts and this kind of stuff. So that's, that's where the, the majority of our market goes, is either B2C or into the restaurant trade. Fantastic. And when it comes to, to food pairing, do you, do you, you know, you've mentioned earlier you, you enjoy your food. Are you designing these beers with that, that food-led drinker in mind? Or is it just a purely selfish endeavour? Purely selfish, purely, purely selfish. I mean, there, there are certain things. So um, we had uh, the, the Bitter Cooper 2021 um, sold mainly through restaurants. Um, and then the 2022 version, the blend for that, some of the restaurateurs came down to the brewery, bought, or bought a huge plate of, it was just cold cuts and charcuterie and, and, and smoked salmon and hot smoked salmon and made us eat it all. And it was horrible. Um, and uh, while well, we tried various different sounds, blends, sounds awful. It, it was terrible. And, and then offered us free tables at his restaurant. It was one of the worst days of my life. Um, and, and, that, and that's what we like. We like, try, what can we make that will go well with cheese, which will go well with fish, which will go well with shellfish, which will go well with food? Because I'm only going to drink a 750 with food. I'm never going to drink a 750 on my, well, no. <laughs> I'm rarely going to drink a 750 on my own, um, but I will quite happily open a bottle of a 750 and have it with dinner and, and I'll be happy. But beer should make you smile. It shouldn't be up his own ass. I agree with that very much so. Um, Dave, something that I've noticed recently is there's definitely a move away from uh, chasing rarer beers. I don't know, as someone who make you make big IPAs as well, um, but certainly, you know, among my peers, there's a lot of desire for just nice pints of 4% beer. But, so what's the market really for a, for a big barrel-aged stout? Who, who do you think is the fierce customer who's enjoying these beers? That's a difficult question. I, I'm not entirely sure that the people that started off um, chasing these big beers aren't still doing it as well. Maybe maybe there are some people inside the sort of bubble that we live in a little bit, being so close to the craft beer industry, um, that are moving away and looking for for laggers and pale ales. But I think I think most of the people that started off drinking the craft beers and wanted big sharing bottles of, of big daft things are, are still after it. I think as craft has expanded and become more accessible to more people, the rest of it has expanded, but maybe that sort of niche, sour, barrel-aged, the, the number of people has stayed relatively similar. So it may look like people don't want these beers anymore. I think it's just not growing at the same rate as everything else is growing. So I, I don't know, but that's kind of what we see. We see the same people coming out of our bar um, looking for these big daft one-off beers that, that did when we first opened it four and a half years ago. So um, I don't know, we're, we're kind of seeing that the, the market is still there. It's just not growing at the same rate as your, your IPAs and things like that. And I think the, the, the chase for hazy beers were those um, one-off daft beers that became accessible to more people that a 12% sour cherry stout would never be. So I think they've kind of pushed um, the... The stranger niche beers are become more accessible to more people, so that's why people are after IPAs and things like that as well. So I don't know. We we, we kind of see those those things still selling pretty well. If we we do a batch of it, it will sell out. People are now looking for us to do other things, pale ales and barrel. We do six and a half percent maple pale ale in a bourbon barrel. So again, that's maybe spreading it a, a more accessible styles. So whether that will get barrel aged beers into more people's hands, I don't know. But um, yeah, we don't necessarily see it as a um, declining sales. Anyways. Well, that's a positive because one of the reasons I wanted to have this panel was I was very curious. Like, who, who are they selling? Who's buying them? You're all making them, and you, you're a handful of breweries. Um, Lee, who who's the customer for for the Brew York barrel aged beers? Um, well, I think there's a thing I learned very early on with Brew York. I should never guess or, or second guess who my customer base is. Um, you would assume it would have originally been uh, men of a certain age wearing sandals. Uh, but that is absolutely... Uh, <laughs> For those listening on the podcast, I am I'm wearing sandals. But right, right from the get-go, we've had a very mixed demographic, male, female, 18, 80, um, and they're all drinking these beers. So, I, yeah, I learned early on I shouldn't do um, 
I, I think our market is definitely changing. Though. Our, our market is evolving, it's maturing. Uh, we're surely reaching saturation point in the UK in terms of breweries and the quantities of beers that are being released. And I think that's a big factor why people aren't chasing the, the new releases, why people are no longer hanging on for the big annual uh, releases. So we still sell out of our barrel-aged beers, but not all in the UK. A big proportion of that is now going elsewhere for us to be able to sell out. So about two-thirds of um, that beer that you just drank there um, is probably going to end up in Scandinavia. So I think different markets are evolving at different rates. And, and there's, there's a lovely little cartoon I've seen on Twitter where you, you have this drinker and he starts out drinking Fosters or whatever. And then he goes and he, he'll have like a nice entry-level pale. And then it's the IPA, then it's the sour, then it's the stouts. And then he goes to craft lager, completing the journey. Yes. Uh, so that, I think that kind of refers to where you started this conversation. And, and then you sort of ascend into the realm of sparkled bitter. And there, and there you remain. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, thanks to the three of you. But before we finish, there's plenty of people in the room. Uh, if you've got any questions, I will I will come to you, and so you can speak into the microphone, so we can record you asking the question. But just raise your hand, and if you've got a question, please direct it at uh, the member of the panel you would like to ask it toward. Any questions? Yes. This is for anyone to answer. Uh, what's your favourite barrel-aged beer that you haven't made yourself? I think that's a great question, and, and we'll start with Toby. Probably. Um, Burning Sky, obviously. Um, Assemblage 2, maybe Cool Ship 2, something like that. One of those two. It's, without a doubt, Burning Sky. Yeah, wonderful brewery, um, at making some fantastic stuff. They've actually got the beer piquette uh, which is sold out everywhere in the fine ale shop. Am I doing your job, Ian? <laughs> the shop there, it, it's worth trying. It's, it's a beer wine hybrid. Um, very, very good. The one minor point is myself and Callum went out for dinner, a lovely, lovely meal on uh, whatever night it was in Glasgow. And what was really interesting was on the menu they had a Berlin's Guy Courtship 2, they had a McKellar um, Sour, and they also had a. It was Lambic, wasn't it? It was the old girl's Lambic in 750ml, which is lovely to see. And it's really rare to see proper beers on a food menu. And it, was, yeah, it made me smile. We're going to have some uh, back, bagpipes passing by. Uh, it all adds to the ambience of the, of the, uh, of the talks. Um, Dave, what's your favourite uh, beer you've drank, barrel-aged beer you haven't made? I, it's so difficult to see the favourite one. The one that had the biggest impact probably on me because it made me understand sour beers was maybe Tartar Darkness by the brewery. Um, so that's the first one that I drank. And I, okay, I kind of understand what they're talking about by sour beers not many, many years ago now. So I picked that one. Maybe not my favourite, but it's one that probably had one of the biggest impacts on me. So, How about you, Lee? Um, probably Evil Twin, even Mod Jesus, or um, The Prairie. But the, was it Bible? Bible? Hmm? Yeah, I knew I had Bible something at the time. So I, yeah, my memory's doing really well today. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Too many big stouts. I was very lucky to drink some uh, some new Belgian beers quite early in my beer journey. Um, uh, La Folie and Le Terroir, which were basically their versions of Belgian sours. They're amazing. But recently, I got to try a beer from the US brewery called Bale Breaker. In fact, I've had several beers from them. They've all been incredible. But they did a Belgian golden ale, so like a Duvel-style 8% beer in wine barrel ages, and it made my jaw hit the floor. Um, so those beers are out there. It's still really exciting to, to see that, that there's excitement. Um, any more questions before a whole marching band come steaming past? <laughs> Um, yeah, this is for Toby. Uh, I wanted to ask um, if you could do a collab with any restaurant in the world, who would it be and what would you brew? That's a great question. Yeah, make sure you just try not to pick one with a chef that's been uh, uh, Probably. Okay, so um, probably Sam at where the, where the Light Gets Him. Um, it's the guy who likes to use every single part of every single item of food he uses. He's massively into his fermentations, and I think, and he's a friend. Uh, which kind of help. Weather like it's in is some in, nice food. Is it, weather like it's in in, in Stockport, uh, south of Manchester, is it absolutely incredible uh, restaurant? Uh, why they're not more widely known, I have no idea. But it, yeah, very good. Um, any more questions for the panel? Yes. Beans have been banned in America. Uh, 
would you use them to keep rats out of your brewery? <laughs> well, I, I should probably elaborate a bit on that. So, um, tonka beans have a, a substance in them called kumarin, which is a bit like warfarin, which is what you would have in uh, rat poison. So it is a blood thinner. Um, technically, if you ate 30 of these beans raw, um, you would bleed out and die. But you wouldn't do that because I, I, very, I very much doubt that you would be able to eat one of them because on their own, they're, they're not very palatable. Um, and in terms of the quantity in one of our beers, you're going to die of alcohol poisoning first. Sold. We've got time for one more question. Any more questions from the audience? And if not, we will wrap up. Well, thank you very much, and please give our panel a very big round of applause. That was a really fascinating discussion. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. You might have heard a voice there in the background on a few occasions. That was Ian Smith, who was the marketing manager at Fine Ales. He recently moved on to another job in the beer industry. I want to say thank you to him personally, because he was the person I originally approached about doing these talks back in 2019. And he was key in helping me organize them and plan them. And I'm really looking forward to working with Fine Ales' new marketing manager, A.D. Fenwick, on the 2023 edition. Tickets for FineFest are available now from finefest.com. I can't recommend a visit to this festival enough. If you've already listened to the previous episodes, you'll have heard me waxing lyrical about how brilliant it is. So get your tickets, and in a few weeks, if you do have a ticket, you'll get an email that gives you the option to buy tickets to our panel discussions, which will be free, but the space only holds about 30 or 40 people, so we do ticket it to make sure it's nice and comfortable and that everyone can sit down and enjoy the experience. I also want to say thank you to everyone who's signed up to our Patreon recently. We are well on our way to hitting our target of 500 subscribers and hopefully, fingers crossed, become a profitable publication. You can support this podcast and our written content on pellicalmag.com by going to patreon.com forward slash pellicalmag. You can support us from just a pound or I think if you're in America, it's about $1.50 every month. Or if you like, you can make a yearly subscription and you get 10% off. And there are different tiers. If you can afford a bit more, then the option is there for you. But essentially, you can help our magazine, pay freelance contributors and work on more content like this from the price of a pint of beer a month. I think that sounds like a win. There's other ways to support us, of course. You can subscribe to this podcast and share your favourite episodes or articles on social media. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, do leave us a review if you have time, as that helps more people find the show if they listen to similar podcasts. I'll be back next week with our final panel from last year's Fine Fest, which is all about one of my favourite subjects, and yours I'm sure, Cascale. Until then, I've been Matthew Curtis, and you've been listening to The Pellicle Podcast. Bye-bye. <laughs>